0: Right, welcome everyone. It's a pleasure to have Andrew Palmer here presenting his new book just out. Apparently the copies you see there are not really the copies meant for distribution. They have been shipped here in Extremis just for you uh, today. So this is really, really new stuff. Uh, I'm very pleased that uh, he can come and present this new stuff here. Andrea Vedelin, who is here, she will chair the meeting. And I just want to uh, say a few words uh, Uh, I tried to convince Andrew that all the ideas in his book actually came out of a discussion I had with him many years ago. He very kindly denied having any recollection of that discussion at all. And so uh, all the ideas, therefore, must be his, truly. Uh, The reason we are excited to have him here uh, in the Systemic Risk Center is because I will give it a Systemic Risk spin to it. The book being on financial innovations... And what he spins very well in his book is this trade-off between innovations being necessary and required to make systems work properly because of inefficiencies in the system. They have to be innovations to bypass the inefficiencies where money doesn't flow the way it should be. So innovations are required to make the system stable and to remove systemic risk. At the same time, I'm sure we'll hear lots of horror stories and war stories, how these innovations and derivatives and things like this have been used for other purposes and create systemic risk. And so there will be this balance in this book between the good and the bad, and I'm looking forward to learning all about that from you. Thanks, Andrew. Sure.
1: So we're all very excited to have Andrew here. So Andrew has been with The Economist since 2007, first as a banking and then finance um, expert. And since 2013, he has been the head of data um, journalism. So Andrew is going to talk about um, the root of all good. He's going to talk about financial innovations. So if you... Followed the financial press since the financial crisis, you probably sensed this slightly negative connotation with financial derivatives. So he's going to give a different view. So he's not just talking about the bad things, but also the good things and how financial innovation is going to solve some of society's problems. So before we start with the talk, some organizational things. So if you're a Twitter user, please use um, hashtag LSCSRC. I would also kindly ask you to turn down your mobile phones, not to disturb the event. Um, after Andrew's talk, there's um, going to be a Q&A session, so if you have any questions, please keep them until the end. And after the Q&A session, Andrew is going to sign his excellent book um, just in front of the venue. So please welcome Andrew um, for his talk.
2: Thank you very much, and thank you for coming. Thanks to the LSE, I was here 20 years ago um, doing a master's, Um, routinely skipping lectures and when I was here not really listening so um, I hope you don't repay me in kind tonight. Uh, I'd also like to thank the the SRC Um, I come too infrequently to your events but they're always incredibly stimulating so uh, the work you do is fantastic So I'm going to talk about uh, money as the root of all good and and in fact I feel more conflicted about finance um, than that Uh, but the reason to, to use that terminology is because we're all aware of the idea of finance as being a pernicious and destructive force. Uh, And it's not just pernicious for humans. In 2005, a group of Yale academics uh, trained some capuchin monkeys uh, in the concept of of money. And they trained them to use tokens in exchange for food. And it went incredibly well. And the monkeys uh, started to respond to price signals... Uh, and when they could buy one more of one type of food than another, uh, they used the tokens accordingly. But then other types of behavior started to emerge. One monkey strayed into crime, um, running off with a full tray of tokens. Another was seen paying another monkey for sex. So money had distorting, distorting effects. Um, and such pernicious effects, such deep neurological effects, also, of course, affect humans. Um, In another experiment, a group of volunteers were given a $50 cash pile, and then they were shown a series of animated um, Wheel of Fortune spinners, which could either subtract or add to their cash winnings, and they were wired up and people were looking at their neurological patterns and as they did well, uh, there was lots of activity in the brain that exhibited a very familiar pattern. And the researchers were a bit stumped at first because it looked, it looked very, very like something else. They couldn't quite work out what it was. And then they realised it was exactly the same kinds of patterns uh, exhibited by cocaine addicts and first-time morphine users uh, when they get dopamine rushes. So money has an addictive uh, quality uh, that is potentially very destructive. My own experience of finance um, in many ways reinforces that narrative. Uh, I started covering finance for The Economist in 2007. It was the week uh, that there was a run on Northern Rock. uh, And for the six subsequent years, all I saw was large-scale incompetence, mismanagement, outright criminality. Um, It wasn't a particularly impressive uh, scene to behold. Um, I met people who were smart and I met people who were mediocre, Um, I met people who were walled off from reality, Uh, the banker who uh, bemoaned the fact that his bonuses were getting smaller and said he might have to go and live on the south of France on his his olive farm if things continued this way. So there was a sort of great sense of groupthink um, that pervaded the industry. As as I say, you sort of expect me to come out of that experience thinking that finance was all bad. But in fact, I came out of it thinking that the narrative was totally one-sided, that it, was, it lacked nuance. Um, yes, finance screwed up in very, very fundamental ways, uh, but it also has the power to do great good. Uh, yes, there are dangers from finance, but not perhaps in the places where you'd expect. And yes, financial innovation can go very badly wrong, as we saw, but is, it is also the answer to the flaws in the industry that we all worry about. So I want to run through each of those propositions uh, tonight. And the first is that finance can do good. Now, in some ways, this ought to be a very uncontroversial um, proposition to put forward. If you think about the history of human civilization and economic progress, finance has been there holding uh, humans' hands all the way through. When people wanted to trade, they invented money as a means of exchange. When farmers wanted to invest in livestock, they invented debt. When seafarers wanted to mitigate the risk of shipwreck, they played with rudimentary forms of insurance. But it's still doing so. Um, and that's what a large chunk of the, the book talks about, the ways in which finance is still solving problems. There is a meme that finance has got so big uh, that it can no longer be useful. And there's something to that. There are, there's certainly a case to be made that finance flows naturally to activities which are not so productive and I'll come, come back to that but it's clearly nonsense to say that there are not um, problems that can be ser- served and solved by the financial industry and I want to give three examples uh, tonight of, of many that occur in the book So the first is uh, around harnessing behavioural insights to help poorer people uh, to save more So in America, 40% of people cannot get their hands on $2,000 quickly to cope with an emergency. The figures are roughly similar uh, in the UK uh, and continental Europe. Um, Those people could try and get credit, but that's increasingly difficult in the re-regulated environment. The banks are now under pressure to husband their capital, to use it wisely, um, and that implies directing it towards wealthier people the people who will end up taking out mortgages or investing in assets so the credit route is curtailed not least because subprime mortgages is no longer a route for for people to unlock cash payday lenders is another route there are more payday lenders uh, in america than there are branches of starbucks and mcdonald's uh, but we also know the pitfalls of that kind of lending the Common sense, best answer, is to try and encourage people to save. And there's an unintuitive way to get them to do so. And that unintuitive way is through lotteries. Humans love lotteries. Um, These charts show uh, how many people... Um, across various uh, countries uh, indulge and lose. Australians lose the most per head. Uh, America is the market where most money is spent on lotteries. And American households spend more on lotteries each year than they do on dairy products or alcohol. So people love playing lotteries, and that's an impulse that finance has actually harnessed in the past. The idea of limited liability is in some ways about harnessing the lottery Impulse. You put in a certain amount of money, your losses are capped on the downside, and there's a chance of a jackpot um, if things really go well. Premium bonds, another example here. So that insight has been harnessed by a small fund in the US called Doorways to Dreams, and what they've done is set up a series of what they call prize-linked savings accounts, but which are in effect micro-lotteries. And they are targeted specifically at low-income people, and they encourage people to put in increments of $25, and for each increment, they get a raffle ticket. And there's a cap on how much money you can put in, um, so that this is not then played by the wealthy, Um, but that means that people are entered into monthly and annual draws. The prizes that are available are not that great, but that doesn't matter. Just the idea of a payoff is what matters. Uh, And in the five years since these started, initially in Michigan, but now in four states Uh, doorways to to dreams has uh, accounted for an incremental hundred million dollars of new savings from the poorest people in society. Very low tech example, very sort of common sense but a great example nonetheless of finance tweaking things, playing around with behavioural flaws to good effect. The second example um, I want to to draw attention to um, is on a grander scale and it's about big social problems. So there are two sort of issues that dog public spending at the moment. One is that there is clearly pressure on budgets. There's less money to go around. There's pressure all across the rich world to uh, curtail public spending. The second is that a lot of that spending, by no means all, but a lot of that spending is often wasteful. So if you look at um, America again, uh, there were ten federal spending programs that were Rigorously evaluated using randomized control trials between 1990 and 2010. Nine out of those 10 programs either did no good at all or were actively harmful. My personal favorite is one called Scared Straight, which put juvenile offenders in contact with hardcore criminals with the aim of, well, you can guess, Um, it didn't work, surprisingly enough. So you've got two of these problems uh, pressure on budgets and wasteful spending. And one answer to that is the social impact bond, which uh, aficionados of finance will know about, but doesn't get a lot of play uh, more widely. The social impact bond is an idea that you can cram in private capital to fund discretionary public programmes. If those programmes are successful, they will result in cash savings to the state, and those savings can then be used to pay back the original investors. And the first example of a social impact bond, or a SIB, was in Peterborough, uh, and from 2010, which is when it started, um, and it's still running, a programme has been going to fund prisoner rehabilitation programmes for people coming out of the prison in Peterborough who've served sentences of under one year. Um, What happens is that that money is funding a much more intensive intervention with prisoners uh, than the normal process uh, for ex-convicts. People have met at the gates... Uh, There is uh, an effort to ensure that they have money for accommodation on night one because many of them re-offend in order to get back into prison for shelter. Um, There is training uh, provided for basic construction skills um, for people who haven't basically had much opportunity to do so in the past. And their outcomes are measured against a national control group and if they're sufficiently good, then there will be a payout. The first payouts are only due in 2016, but we have interim results they have resulted in much better outcomes relative to the national control group. And more to the point, this one example is now spreading, um, if not like wildfire, certainly fast um, around Britain and beyond. So in Britain there are now sibs that um, pay for multisystemic intervention for adolescents who are troubled to keep them out of state care, that pay to prize entrenched rough sleepers off the streets of London... Um, by using um, very, very um, rigorous and careful intervention, actually, um, to ensure that kids that are particularly hard to place for adoption uh, can, can, can indeed be, be put into uh, family care. It's also spread beyond Britain. There are about 20 SIBs now operating in the UK, but there are SIBs in uh, the US, in Europe, um, and indeed in the developing world. So the DIB, or the Development Impact Bond, is the same idea, except rather than the state paying investors back if things go well, it's multilateral aid agencies. And the only reason for showing this chart is to drive home um, how, if we are seeing good results in the rich world from prisoner rehabilitation uh, programs, think how much more effective or how much great greater the returns would be um, if you were doing the same kind of thing in a place like uh, Latin America. The final example of finance doing good is is more um, high-tech, more advanced, if you like, and that's around financial engineering um, in order to encourage the development of promising medicines. So Andrew Lowe, who's an academic at the MIT, has formulated this very provocative question which um, pits the two great villains of the age. Can financial engineering cure cancer is the question that he's he's asked. What he's getting at um, is a phenomenon... Um, which is known acutely as E-Room's Law. We all know what Moore's Law is, the idea that computer processing power doubles every 18 months or so. E-Room's Law just inverts that. And what it's um, referring to is the fact that for every billion dollars spent on drugs research um, at the moment, the number of drugs that results in um, as being approved by the US FDA halves uh, every nine years or so. Um, There is a term in the drugs industry called the valley of death. And that is the translational period when uh, promising medicines go from um, being in the lab into clinical trials. That's when the risks of failure are highest. It's also when capital is scarcest. It's very, very hard to get people to put money in. So Andrew Lowe's idea is to create a fund which basically puts together up to $30 billion worth of capital um, And in that fund is a portfolio of promising early-stage medicines. Some are slightly later, and they're already producing royalties. Some are just gleams in the eye of researchers. But the idea is that with a large enough fund, you get more shots on goal, the classic argument from diversification. He also wants to use techniques around securitization. Now, securitization, people think of as a technique for blowing up the world economy. What it just means is smooshing together income flows from lots of different products. Um, That's how he wants to structure this fund, too. So lots and lots of medicines which push off this income flow, um, tranching techniques which mean that creditors who are particularly risk-averse can sit at the top of the hierarchy and can take first bite at those those royalties. So it's a piece of, I mean, it's not particularly complex financial engineering. It is nevertheless using a technique which is widely uh, suspected for the greater good it will take a long time for a £30 fund to come together. Um, But there are small examples already. There's an equity fund which does exactly this, which listed in Dublin last month, and there are talks going on right now with um, US government uh, medical research agencies to try and make this work at smaller scale for orphan diseases, which are very rare genetic diseases. Those are three examples of finance doing good. I I hope, and I'm happy to talk about other examples in the book, that they persuade you that ingenuity in itself is not something to to fear. So what is the reason to fear? Because it is clear that finance does have a habit of taking good ideas and systematically um, making them sour. And my contention in the book is that the thing to fear is not the new idea but the established market, and in particular the way in which those ideas become big. So one issue is heft itself. And this is just the obvious point that things that are big are capable of bringing down the financial system. Those are the ones you need to worry about because they have the capacity to to do greatest harm. But there's also the point that things get big by doing things in a particular way. There's standardisation of language and documentation. Um, And there's also uh, the idea uh, of safety. There's a particularly good academic paper, which, if you can skip past the algebra, crudely put, um, and this is by Genioli, Schleifer and Vishny, crudely put, lays out um, a sort of schematic for how innovation leads to financial fragility. And it goes a little like like this, that investors want to get their hands on a particular type of asset, um, let's say treasury bonds, but there aren't enough of them to go round, so the industry creates things which looks kind of safe, like treasury bonds, but offers a bit more in the way of returns on top. So mortgage-backed securities fit into this topology. AAA credit rating, fantastic. That looks safe, but you get a bit of, um, bit of juice in terms of your income as well. There's another example, which is the Money Market Fund. And the Money Market Fund stampede during the, the, that week in September 2008 was the thing that most worried U.S. financial regulators – The Money Market Fund basically offers the same security as a bank deposit so you can get your money back when you you want and the principal won't be dented, Uh, but it also offers the opportunity of greater returns on top uh, if if the markets go your way. So it's not the dash for risk that should worry people. It's the hunt for safe returns that's really worrying. That's where people flow um, at scale. Um, and in a way that makes them unprepared for things going wrong. You don't expect a uh, AAA-rated instrument to suddenly start defaulting in huge numbers. You don't expect a money market fund to break the buck. So when that happens, there is panic, and finance cannot cope with panic. Now, if people were looking closely at these instruments, then there wouldn't be a problem. But um, the trouble is... Once you get beyond a certain scale, you don't have specialised investors anymore. You don't have people doing lots of due diligence. You have a machine which pumps ever faster, which is being driven by competitive pressures to go down the credit ladder to add a little bit of leverage, and which starts to create heuristics or rules of thumb that make it much easier for investors um, who perhaps don't know these instruments or asset classes that well to start to invest. Now, heuristics are incredibly useful. We've been using them since um, we were hunter-gatherers to run away from danger uh, the moment we've, we centred it. The trouble is that in finance, the heuristics tend to attract people towards danger. So in the mortgage boom before the crash, uh, the FICO score, the credit score um, that sort of pervades America's financial system... Um, was one such thing. It set a cut-off. It said that if you had a credit score of 620, you were safe, and if you were below 620, you weren't safe. And what happened is that there were higher default rates above 620 than there were below 620 because people weren't paying attention. The AAA credit rating I've already mentioned, that's an obvious example of, and, and perhaps the single most uh, destructive um, element of, of, of the build-up to the crisis, of a heuristic which completely uh, lulled people into a sense of false security. Papers that look at the AAA credit rating show that every other credit rating um, investors were being discerning, that yields moved around in a way which um, actually had some predictive power. AAA credit ratings had no predictive power in terms of their initial yields. People just looked at that and bought. They didn't think any any further. So you've got all these things coming together. You've got heft, you've got the idea of safety, and you've got unspecialised investors. And... People will often write about how, you know, the next meltdown won't be like the last one. You can be sure of that. Well, I'd say that's total rubbish. The next meltdown will be in exactly the same place as the last one and the one before that, and it will be around property. Property is the world's biggest financial asset. Um, It grew incredibly fast um, in the run-up to the boom. Um, You can see here mortgage lending is potentially total bank lending, um, and this is a very long-run chart, but in, just in the last uh, 20 years alone, uh, the growth in uh, private sector debt as a percentage of GDP was driven almost exclusively by mortgage lending. And if you think about the qualities of property, you can see immediately why why we should worry. Of course, it's, it's very large. It's got tons of unspecialized investors in there. That's you and me and everyone else, making decisions based on what the weather's like or um, what the neighbour's house sold for. Uh, We have the illusion of safety, um, not just in our own minds, the idea that we have something tangible um, from putting money into a mortgage, but also hardwired into the financial system. So capital regulations, privilege... Uh, lending against property. Bankers themselves think of property as being incredibly safe because it's secured lending um, and, the, and it's collateralized. And this brings us back, I think, to the point about finance being less productive at scale. The idea that the bigger it gets, the, r- the less quickly we grow rich. And that's because property is the thing that Capital glums onto beyond a certain beyond a certain scale it 's incredibly easy to put that last extra dollar towards towards property it 's secured it 's tangible you can you can see what you 're going to recover in the event of a, of a default um, but it 's also the, the thing that 's there at the scene of the crime every time there 's a banking crisis of, of any magnitude, property is somewhere there lurking um, and that 's what I think that's what we should worry about, and that is clearly not what um, the regulators have worried about um, or the politicians in the aftermath of the crisis. Uh, We have a political and public discourse which talks about the casino investment banking and the utility uh, of the retail and commercial banking world. The utility is the place to worry about. Uh, We have an election campaign where people are falling over themselves uh, to uh, prop up demand and to ensure that first-time buyers... Uh, somehow get onto the to the ladder. Um, no, no sense of addressing the supply question. It's all about this most sacred of constituencies, the the want to be homeowner. So I think there's a there's there's a major problem with where people have have diagnosed risk in the aftermath of the crisis. It is not it's not the wild schemas in the investment banks, although they had a part to play in some of the complexity of securitization, It is the much more simple, humble asset of property and instrument of the mortgage. The last proposition I wanted to talk about was around um, how financial innovation can help resolve some of finance's major flaws. So... Property itself is actually a place where we should see much more innovation. It's incredibly hard for entrepreneurs to fight all of those policy headwinds, interest rate deductions, all of the giveaways uh, that we see here, um, make make it very difficult to fight. But there are some interesting examples of entrepreneurs using shared equity mortgages um, or creating classes of securitized bonds which use rental income um, as opposed to mortgage payments in the U.S., But away from housing, there are plenty of examples of innovation and entrepreneurship which are making really big and interesting strides towards a new financial system. Um, And this is the fintech wave, financial technology. So when I was looking closely at the industry, I saw sort of two two big acts of a three-act drama. One was the crisis itself. The second was re-regulation and the third is now underway and that's the rise of alternatives to the banks in all sorts of areas uh, from payments to credit card lending to equity crowdfunding. Goldman estimates that there is $4.7 trillion worth of revenue in financial services that's addressable by these new um, companies. Uh, We're a very, very long way from getting to that sort of number but there's there's a huge opportunity there. Loads of venture capital money going in, um, clusters springing up in London around Shoreditch, uh, in New York, um, close to Wall Street, and of course in San Francisco to try and take advantage of some of the failures of finance uh, that became so clear as a result of the crisis. I want to talk um, a little bit about just one, probably the most furthest advanced um, bit of financial innovation, and that's the peer to peer lenders. So the peer-to-peer lenders um, basically get rid of the banks um, in the lending space. At the moment, a bank intermediates um, lenders and borrowers. We put our deposits into a bank, and the bank takes it and then lends it out to a, to a borrower, borrower. It sits in between us. Uh, the peer-to-peer lenders are also known as marketplace lenders or direct lenders, um, and they basically allow people to connect directly. So I, as a lender, um, can give my money directly uh, to, a, to a would-be borrower. These platforms are well past the interesting experiment phase. Uh, in the US, Lending Club has gone um, public. It went public in December. It's the largest one worldwide. Prosper is its crosstown um, rival in the Valley. It will go public very soon. Funding Circle is a small business platform in the UK which last week raised 150 million quid um, despite not needing it. Um, One of the backers was one of the early backers of uh, Facebook. Um, The outstanding portfolio of these different types of lenders is doubling every year even as the balance sheets of traditional lenders is shrinking. These are tiny numbers still, no question. Um, So Lending Club has lent in total about $8 billion dollars um, to individuals and small businesses through its platform in the eight years that it's been been going. And that compares to outstanding credit card debt in the U.S. of $800 billion, um, and $300 billion worth of prime or credit-worthy borrowers. So it's only a small slice of the market. But if you look closely at what these platforms and their ilk offer, I think you'd be worried if you were sitting in um, the corner office of a big bank Their their cost advantage, and that's what this slide shows, um, is clear. They don't have branch networks. Their IT systems are less um, complicated um, and old. Um, They rely more on word of mouth. They are just much, much leaner, and that means that they can sit neatly inside um, the spreads that traditional lenders um, make their money out of. They are very, very convenient. They are basically engineered around customers in a way that mainstream banks have long not been. So Funding Circle most of its applications come in outside business hours, that doesn't matter, it's an online platform Um, and most of its applicants have actually been to a bank in the past and now switched and they do so primarily because they say the process of trying to get credit out of an established institution is too long and too inefficient the regulators love them and that counts in this world There are two sort of big problems, um, crudely put, with the the banking system. One is leverage, and the other is maturity transformation. And peer to peer lenders address both of those flaws. So, in terms of leverage, it's not the bank, or rather, it's not the platform that's on the hook if there are defaults, it's it's the end investor, the provider of capital. And in terms of maturity transformation, you put your money in and you only get it back when the loan that you've funded. Um, Has run off. That, at least in principle, is how it should work. And both of those things are very attractive in reducing uh, systemic risk. Institutional investors are flocking to this platform as well. It's a chance to fund loans, which they haven't been able to do um, at scale before. Two-thirds of the money that goes onto these platforms in the US is now institutional money. Pension funds, insurers, hedge funds, and the like. Um, So peer-to-peer is a misnomer. It's no longer... Um, individual, communitarian um, borrowing and lending. This is this is turning into a seriously big business with securitisation, credit ratings, and all the rest. The banks aren't going to disappear. We shouldn't overhype this. But if you look at what these um, what these lenders are capable of, um, fast, efficient, cheap underwriting. Um, then there's definitely a reason to be worried. And actually, the advantages of the banks kind of crystallised down to some things which are really kind of worrying. Like, I have a branch network which is incredibly expensive to maintain and people are no longer going to. Or um, I have a govern- government banked deposit insurance scheme, um, which is the safety net that everyone worries about. So it's a, it's, a, it's a worrying prospect for the banks. On the other hand, and this is to both to wrap up and to bring us back to um, the issues I touched on in the middle of of this speech. You can see already how the peer-to-peer lenders are going down the road that leads eventually, and inexorably probably, to trouble. So they're taking on the job of risk assessment. They started off with this very nice um, libertarian idea that you just let borrowers and lenders meet through an auction system. Basically, lenders would bid down the interest rate that they were prepared to pay uh, until the market cleared. It turns out that both retail investors and professional investors are morons when it comes to auctions. They don't really care about whether they're pricing risk right. They care about winning the auction. That's all that matters. So they bid and bid and bid until it gets way too low. And they realized that default rates were, were spiraling out of control, Prosper briefly, which was um, at the time the biggest U.S., um, platform got into real trouble, um, had to close down briefly, partly because of regulatory intervention. And now they've gone to a to a model where they do the risk assessment and they put people into bands, and they assign letters which look a little bit like credit ratings to those bands. And A is good, and you can see that over time, um, people are going to get. Very seduced by that, just at the time when, in order to grow, those platforms are going to have to start taking on less credit worthy risks. At the same time, they're doing things that are not totally bank like, but they're a little bit bank like. So the idea that default risk lies totally with the borrower sorry, with the lender, with the provider of capital is being whittled away at because a lot of these platforms now have provisioning funds. They're reserving bits of money, and they're saying that if there are defaults, we'll just top you up from that fund. So the risk of default seems less present than it, than it once did. They're developing secondary markets, which imply that you can sell your loans, um, and actually there is liquidity and maturity transformation or the fact that you can't get your, lo- your money back um, until a loan that you funded has run off, that's being whittled away at. And there are, there are products in the UK that I think the regulator probably ought to be looking at, which, is, which, which are expressly uh, promising money back um, before your loan has run off. So all of those sort of illusions of safety that people worry about and saw working to the disadvantage of the system um, in the run-up to the crisis and when it hit, you could just see them starting in the peer-to-peer realm too. Um, and it's something to watch. So I th- think I'm going to, going to stop there. The, my aim is not to persuade you that money is, or finance is the root of all good, more that finance is not painted solely in shades of black, that there are good things that finance can do, that there are creative people with a social conscience in finance, that it is not a terrible thing if all our graduates um, don't go into finance. That you know there is a role for people to go into this industry. Um, and next time someone tells you that finance is good only for enriching bankers, I would urge you to think of some of these examples and the entrepreneurs um, and people uh, that I write about in the book. Thank you very much for your attention. this thank you very much that was extremely interesting um there's another aspect though which you haven't touched on which is the extent that um investors in public companies especially equity investors can be a force for good by encouraging companies to behave in a responsible way and there's a lot of you know nauseous nor, nor, bank fund for example trying to have ethical guidelines and um, that strikes me as being quite a, an important Archimedean lever for getting the whole public company system to clean up its act do you have any comments on that? Um, yeah I tend to, I mean I can see that that is a force for changing, changing behaviour I tend to be slightly more um, standoffish about it so if things are legal um, and People want to transact um, in particular industries like tobacco or defence. Then that's that's absolutely fine. Um, I mean, you're probably thinking of things like divestment from fossil fuels, etc., which which is kind of in the news news at the moment. I can see that that's that's a useful lever for investors to pull if they if they so wish. More about things like sustainability and the classic tension between long termism and short termism. Yeah, I think. I think that's a kind of... So that's a structure of markets rather than finance itself going, going bonkers. Um, I think there are clearly things to do around the sort of frequency of reporting and what that does to the incentives of managers. There are clearly things to do around stock options um, and the incentives to hit strike prices um, at a particular, particular time. Um, there may well be some interesting things to think about in terms of ownership, although I'd say mandating different sort of classes of voting rights... To reflect who's held shares for particular time periods, which is what they're doing in France at the moment, strikes me as completely ridiculous. Because those long term investors might include the state, which has not necessarily done the greatest job in terms of encouraging um, good stewardship of of companies. So, on the public markets, and this just holds more generally, I'm pro equity. I think equity is great. So, the the kind of big taboo, the big distorting policy is, is the privileging of debt in in tax codes. Um, and you know we see this with mortgages clearly in the in the US still, but just across the board for companies, there is a great incentive to load up on on debt. That to me is is a huge distortion that doesn't get talked about partly because it'd be almost impossible to work out how it would unravel and exactly where the, the ripple effects would be. But that that in terms of kind of the sustainability of the of the system, the risks of systemic crashes, kind of doing doing more to guide people away from debt and towards equity would be a good thing. Two questions. You, uh, you, were, you were first and then, and then there.
3: Hey. Um, thanks for your talk. I'm not an economist by any means or anything like that. Me neither. Um, so you might to give me a really simple answer. Um, I was wondering about this, it wasn't mentioned at all at this, and I'm not sure if it's mentioned in the book, but you know things like cryptocurrencies and that kind of stuff, does that have any potential to do anything, any good trends coming out of that kind of thing, or is that a complete?
2: Um, That's a really good question. I sort of deliberately steered away from um, cryptocurrencies, partly because, um, you know, as I found through this process, book publishing is kind of hostage to fast-moving events, and the, the, the price of Bitcoin is a particularly fast-moving um, event. So uh, I, think, I think the interesting thing around cryptocurrencies, and it's not so much the sort of libertarian-slash-anarchic um, case for Bitcoin or whatever it, it might be, it's the underlying technology, the blockchain idea. So this decentralized ledger that's a kind of transparent record of of, uh, of transactions that in theory at least is fraud proof um, there is a lot of interest and money going into startups now trying to work out how can you apply this blockchain idea to to the markets so you know we saw for example in the mortgage bust um, The fact that the system had basically completely failed to keep up with transactions. By the time things hit the courts, no one knew who owned which securities because the the reporting system just couldn't couldn't keep up. The blockchain might well be a way of answering that kind of question. So the sort of infrastructure problem of keeping up with a very fast-growing market potentially is is interesting. There there is money in there. I think it may well come to pass. I I steered, steered clear of it, but it is an interesting area. We had a question there.
3: Um, so I was wondering, or I couldn't help but thinking, when you were uh, making some of your points earlier, that one of the problems isn't so much the financial engineering, but a lot of it um, goes back to the regulators um, and also to the ratings agencies back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So I was wondering, to what extent do you think that some of the regulation which is coming out from Dodd uh, Frank in the US, the swap execution research, et etc., and also
2: very similar. similar um, um, so, I think broadly speaking, the regulation of the industry has been kind of pretty well calibrated and pretty good. Broadly speaking, so they, you know, capital and liquidity are clearly the right levers to be um, pulling in order to make the system safer. And we have a lot more capital around this. The latest sort of iterations of this have total loss-absorbing capital of twenty percent. That seems that seems pretty pretty right. Um, Liquidity too. I think they're sort of moving in the right right direction. Um, But there are some some issues still. The rating agencies is just an incredibly difficult problem to solve. Dodd Frank mandated that the rating agencies somehow disappear. Um, It's not clear how that's going to. Actually, happen in practice. They are still completely interwoven in the Basel uh, Accords. And even if they were got rid of, something else would pop up. There would be a letter scale that would represent a hierarchy of creditworthiness, and people will start to sort of behave in 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 the ways I described around around those. Um, I think all the stuff around sort of you know clearing and um, going on to exchanges with derivatives makes an awful lot of sense. But we are then shifting risk to another kind of very safe institution which is the clearinghouse so if you worry about again sort of heft and the illusion of safety uh, clearinghouses look undercapitalized in my view but i would give i would give the regulators a kind of seven or eight out of ten actually for what they've what they've done to date there's a question there
4: Thanks. I um, Actually, have a question about the last slide. Um, in some ways, those lending clubs, when they're small, sound a lot like the Asusus in Nigeria or the Stokfel in South Africa, sort of informal groups of people that come together and lend money to each other. But at, when they're at that small size, they don't have all the benefits of the big banks. They don't have those huge pools of capital that can go to infrastructure investment and whatever, which are what developing nations are trying to get. But it also sounds to me like what you're saying is that the once they achieve scale, they inherit almost by necessity all these negative things that you've spoken about. Do you th- are there policy implications along the way to stop the lending clubs developing into the banks? And what are they? Or do you think it's just a necessary function? It's almost a cyclical thing that you're going to have these smallish saving circles growing, 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 inheriting all these negative things that you've developed. Along on the way being able to provide big pools of capital, great, 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 well done, then they'll crash again and we start again with some different um, device.
2: So, I, I mean, the thing, the, thing, the thing that would really kind of turbocharge my worries would be if they somehow got a deposit guarantee. Um, and it's possible that they, you know, they already talk about this, right? It's sort of very long term. This is why shouldn't people have money sitting in, the, in their account, at a lending club, or a Zopa, or a rate setter, um, and why shouldn't the government treat it as a as 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 a gu- guaranteed deposit-like pile of money? Um, that would be that would be absolutely terrible. Um, but it may be that they'll do things which also make it feel like it's guaranteed in some way. You know, there's no, there's no real real safety. I don't, you know, it's. I'm not saying there is a total inevitability um, to this that there has to be a crash at the end of it. Um, but it is clear that the the sort of pressure in the industry as, as growth takes hold is towards less good outcomes. So probably the single quote which most stayed with me from the reporting during the crisis was with someone who now heads one of the world's top five banks who said that the only way that we can grow is by going down the credit ladder or taking on debt. That was an incredibly unimaginative statement but it's also an incredibly worrying one if that is really the only way that these things can grow that means there will be something bad at the, at the end of the process um, so it's, it's, I think it's an argument for vigilance it's an argument for the regulators being a little unpredictable um, which is not something that you know we sort of institutionally at The Economist argue for but um, the idea that every, every so often you kind of line someone up you line them all up and shoot someone is not a bad way of kind of, of regulating um, you sort of, you know, you, you, that that element of unpredictability may may well be quite quite useful. I don't think there's a tremendous read across from sort of the Roskers and the kind of those savings clubs to um, to what Lending Club et al did. They they immediately enabled at scale um, sort of lending um, between strangers. And the, those those savings clubs depend very much on kind of peer effects. You know who's in the village, and you you're prepared to keep paying your money in and there are attempts in Silicon Valley to try and create digital versions of these, these savings clubs but they can't create the same bonds online that they could do they can do in the village oh wow ok um, let's, go, let's go to the gentleman in the third row first and then we'll go, uh, we'll, go <laughs> we'll go there and there, that's three and then we'll come to you guys afterwards I'm wondering what your
0: opinion is on short selling. Um, I think uh, a lot of unsophisticated investors tend to invest through funds and in particular there's been a lot of that uh, with respect to developing markets. I'm now reading that uh, several hedge funds are putting a huge bet against the managers of these funds in the belief that there's going to be a big drop in the developing markets, and therefore the funds, seems to me this is a sort of a situation where the very sophisticated is going to clean out a lot of the unsophisticated investors. Uh, how do you feel about that?
2: I'm I'm totally in favour of short selling. I think it's completely um, an important function of markets. Markets are about price discovery, and the idea that they can only go up. Is not right. So short selling is is a helpful input into the price discovery process, and you see kind of you know the likes of China, which is not not a a, a country that would that does things rashly, um, starting to encourage short selling, is I think a, a useful indicator of how sort of people think about its roles that it has a, it has a constructive role to play. Clearly, there is, it sort of feels feels wrong at times, um, but. Um, you know, I would point you back to property. This is an asset class where it's incredibly difficult to take bets against um, prices going up, and that's a that's a real problem. And that's part of the reason why prices tend to t- tend to rush ahead is that you can't bet on bet on declines. Or in order to do so, you've got to be massively sophisticated and take out you know credit default swaps on these strange synthetic instruments. That's why there are only about you know ten twenty people actually got really rich out of the. The bastards, because it was really difficult to short. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a paid-up believer. Um, so we'll go there, and then to the gentleman behind.
3: i uh, really enjoyed that
2: talk. I thought it was great. Um, you mentioned in your talk that Goldman Sachs had analysed 4.7 trillion, I think, um, in in fintech and alternative kind of banking. Um, I was wondering how uh, you think the banks going to react to this in, in the coming years. Uh, and what they're going to do about it or what kind of market they're now going to look into? Um, So we're kind of moving from the denial phase right now. So, I mean, it was impossible to get anyone to talk about this seriously in the mainstream institutions until until recently. It was dismissed, sort of hippy-dippy stuff, don't have to worry about it. Um, Now things are clearly changing. Um, So we have examples in the UK and the US of banks using these platforms um, to, to, to... um, actually, add to their portfolio. So, small community banks in the U.S. Um, are investing in loans on Lending Club and Prosper in order to diversify. Um, we see tie-ups between Santander and Funding Circle here. So, there will be a bit of sort of there will be a bit of co-opting, a little bit of sort of you know um, dallying around with each other, seeing how things things work. At some point, a bank will try to buy one of these. These things, And then it would be an interesting moment for regulators to work out whether they think that's a great, a great idea. Um, so I think there is a bit of a race here for these things to get sufficiently big that they've, they've kind of listed and they're difficult to take over um, and the urge for banks to acquire. So we'll see, a, we'll see a sort of drifting towards each other in various ways, a bit of cooperation, a bit of co-opting, a bit of acquisition. But I wouldn't expect the start-ups to disappear completely.
1: Thanks. Um, do you think that um, financial innovation is uh, an evolutionary process that inevitably takes us all forward? So, because if it is, then you'd expect there to be lots of ideas that fail and go to the wall um, so that the good ones survive. And in that context, subprime mortgages might have turned out to be a good idea. They didn't, but um, you know, it's
2: inevitable, and that's what we
1: want, isn't it?
2: So um, subprime mortgages... Uh, were an excuse for bad lending because people looked at the collateral and not at the underlying creditworthiness of the borrower. That was that's the sort of the real the real problem. It wasn't the subprime bit of it. It was the it was the property bit of it that was really really the problem. Property occupies this sort of I'm slightly obsessed by it, but it's sort of, I think it's obsessional for lots of people because it's it turned into a kind of welfare state um, kind of mechanism. Too. It, sort of, it meant no one had to think, at least until now, about some of the distributional effects that, that you know, are very, very current in, in, in politics today. Um, I think lessons will have been learned from sub, the subprime crash which will be, which will be useful. So you know, payday lenders, it's hard to stand up and defend payday lenders, but there is much better underwriting going on now uh, as a result of what we saw as the sub, in, during the subprime uh, boom, um, in the business sphere and also in the individual individual sphere, so people sort of grabbing data from all over the place and not relying just on the kind of experience and the sort of classic, rather blunt credit rating scores. Um, there's a great company in the in the US called OnDeck, which has also just gone uh, gone public, um, and they they target small businesses. Entirely, and but they they're just incredibly fine-grained underwriting a process underwriting process, which which kind of I think it's sort of builds on some of the experiences of subprime without falling into the trap of only concentrating on 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 collateral. So I think it is, it is evolutionary. There are some lessons there; they will be learned from. There were some hands up there. So we go to that gentleman.
1: Has there been a very low rate of default by UK mortgagees in this recession? And was the collapse of the U.K. banks related to proprietorial investment in the U.S. subprime market? And Has your eschewing of qualifications in economics, finance or maths helped you to be untrammelled by the conventional wisdom to follow the banking sector and in writing your book?
2: Um, So I'm not an economist. Um, I was terrible at maths. Uh, So um, my my qualifications um, didn't really prepare me for this, I think. Um, My my qualification, I'll take that first. My qualification was not knowing much about the sector. Um, I I got called into the editor's office. It's a very feudal system at The Economist. You You get called up and basically told what you're going to cover. And I was told I was going to cover the banks, and this was summer 2007. And my response was a sort of sinking feeling. Um, you know, I'm going to be covering an industry that makes money hand over fist for for the next three years it's going to be intensely boring um, you know, what on earth how, how am I going to get through this experience and it turns out I was thinking exactly like a financial regulator I assumed that people were smart and competent, I didn't really have to worry um, and then immediately the whole system collapsed and it kept on collapsing and not knowing anything was my greatest advantage, um, I could ask intensely stupid questions at a time when they were really appropriate. Um, and your first question, sorry, can you repeat? Um, has been a very low rate of default by UK mortgagees in
1: this recession, and was the collapse of the UK banks related to proprietorial investment in the US subprime market rather than individual mortgagees making bad investments?
2: Um, so, I don't think, think prop investments particularly made much of a difference except to RBS. RBS took on... ABN AMRO, that was the thing that killed RBS. Um, that, that, was a, that was a really terrible and destructive acquisition. Um, and they had a lot of US subprime stuff. The thing that really sank the, the, the British banks were, was um, commercial real estate. So not, not, not retail mortgages, but it, that was the sort of H. Boss. Uh, disaster. So that was it. Was it was much more on the office side of things. But I would. I still think all of the all of the reasons to worry about property kind of apply on the commercial side as they do, as well as they do on the on the retail side. It's still it's still an asset that tends to suck up lots of capital without much thought. You have a question there.
4: Uh, coming today, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about mortgages, or ask you to talk a little bit more about that in terms of how to protect or maybe how to help unsophisticated investors enter into mortgage agreements and how to protect them from a situation like the financial crisis where they're entering into something and they have, you have a professional on one side and an unsophisticated investor on the other and if the professional's telling them certain things, you know, it can be easy to enter into agreements they might not, they might, are not wise. Is there a way to protect that or against that? On the invest, are the unsophisticated investors' side?
2: Yeah. Um, so that there are there are changes, and particularly here, the mortgage market review means that you're kind of jumping through through mu- many more hoops. Um, and I think, on balance, that's probably quite a useful useful thing to 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 have changed. Um, you could imagine products like shared equity, uh, where you're just you're not as exposed to the downside as in a traditional mortgage being useful. There is a um, there's a firm called Castle Trust, which is a UK lender, very new, very interesting, which is trying to change the way that we think about mortgages. It writes shared equity mortgages, so it takes... basically you're not There are no capital repayments, no interest payments, but you're, you give up a large slice of the upside gains and you take a little bit of the... Um, and they take a, a slice of the downside movements, um, if, if there are any. Um, the trouble is, nobody likes these things when prices are going up. Nobody's prepared to sacrifice... Um, the upside, and that's 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 the problem with the model. They find it really difficult to get people to bite um, because everyone can see prices going up um, with good reason, given the way that the policy environment is is set up. My my sort of my preferred solution to the problems of property is not particularly helpful um, to individuals who aren't on the property ladder, and that's loan to value ratios. I think there should be much much tougher um, requirements on the amount of deposits that people put down. And I realise there's a sort of, there's, a, there's an unpleasantness to this. I speak as a homeowner, telling people that you have to put down an incredible amount of money um, in order to get onto the property ladder. But I think that that's in the absence of a really big supply response, and, you know, that would be ideal, but in the absence of that, um, that's probably the thing which would sort of help to alleviate price, uh, price rises and increase financial stability
1: I have someone
4: here? Thanks for that interesting talk. I have to agree with what Lover you say because um, I work for a social impact p- for private equity fund. Um, my question was around property. Uh, you kind of alluded to it there but I wanted to ask if there's any countries that have got this model right and as a result has that reduced any potential recessions in the same way that they've hit over here?
2: So you know, the obvious example is Germany. The trouble is, it would require us to be German. Um, So it's very, very entrenched culturally. um, You know the attitude towards towards renting in that country. So it's it's a it's a nation of renters. Um, People move into homes, but much, much later. Um, And there is a whole setup there with loads and loads of institutional capital um, that is happy to to go into um, the rental economy. Tremendous. Rules that govern um, the price, price rises, so there's protection for tenants as well, but the whole, the whole sort of culture, the whole institutional setup is very, very embedded, and it's, it's very hard to see that happening quickly, quickly here. And the idea that you get there just by capping rents, which is Miliband's latest proposal, this, that's fine on one side, but you can't just do that. You have to have the institutional capital in there first. In order for this to really, really take off, take off, and you can't also be dangling goodies in front of first-time buyers. Um, so Germany is the is the country that's got it, got it right. Um, very hard to mimic it. In the meantime, I'd say you know, if you if you had higher deposits, kind of enforce some of these processes of underwriting, of better um, better products. This Castle Trust thing, just briefly on that, it reminded me that that they have a really interesting. Um, and I think totally unique balance sheet approach. So, what they, the problem with normal underwriting is that you kind of, you know, you've got mortgages uh, on, on the asset side of the, the balance sheet, and then your liabilities don't really change if there's a housing price crash. You still got to pay back your lenders. Castle Trust have a matched balance sheet where they fund themselves with uh, a product that basically mimics or, or, or whose returns are tied to national price house movements. So, if there is a price crash, their assets go down, but they also have to pay their, um, their lenders less money, because these investment products that fund them are tied to the, price, to the price index. I'm not explaining it very well, but it's a matched balance sheet, and it's actually a really interesting interesting
3: idea. Uh, one there, and one, one right at the back. Hi. Um, I guess, um, I, I work as a quant in one of these big banks, um, and I find the... Um, I'm, I'm a bit wary of these um, final financial engineering for social purposes because of my experience in the bank, because I've come across... Um, I started my career after the crisis, but I've obviously learned a lot about what went on during that time. And repeatedly, I come across something, some structure or some securitization, something where my initial reaction is, this is crazy, why would anyone do this? But then I find out a bit more about it, and it's like that's actually quite clever and it actually does solve a problem. But what went wrong with it? And often it's actually, I mean, part, partly it's what you said about investors not really being aware. But the other part is actually some people being too aware and being quite clever in terms of, because their, their incentives aren't aligned with the incentives that the product is actually trying to um, help. And so, you know, whether it's like finding some way in which the regulatory treatment's better or, you know, some way in which it actually benefits them, um, they push something way beyond what it's supposed to be used for, and I guess that's why. I mean, well, that seems to be a general problem in financial engineering, and particularly when it comes to these social applications. I find myself a bit, say, sceptical about whether this sort of thing wouldn't happen.
2: So, um, I, I think scepticism is absolutely the right way to think about almost anything connected to finance. Um, the. the... This, this this book is contrarian in the sense that it's not just slamming the industry, uh, but it doesn't. It's not an apology for the for the industry. I would say um, that using financial engineering for social ends is better than using financial engineering for unconstructive ends, like getting into ever bigger mansions in 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 the states. Um, so that's one that's one thing. That there is a certain level of complexity. Beyond which you shouldn't go, and then there is a level of complexity which is, I think we can handle. So the, you know, the, the drug portfolio example I mentioned is pretty simple. It's not, it's it's really not engineering in the sense that it's kind of trying to create um, and and obfuscate um, sort of new new ways of, of enriching um, their invest their inventors. Um, so I don't know that there's a great there 's a great answer to, to that question, but I do know that there's you know, most investors put their money into debt debt like products about three quarters of the stock of outstanding financial assets is in debt rather than equity. People like like debt they like the security of debt, and securitization can be a way of, of, of increasing that, that level of security without without encouraging bad outcomes. I mean, you can, you, know, you can make these things bankruptcy, remote. The tranching actually worked during the crisis. It actually worked as it should have done. And if you look at a, if you look at a CDO, in many ways, it's less complex than a, than a listed company, right? I mean, on a listed company, suddenly you can be owning on the, the asset side something you had no idea you were going to be owning, um, you know, because there'll be a merger or a takeover or whatever, and suddenly you're, what you thought you own is totally different CDOs contained the same the same assets. They didn't change. They were just terribly underwritten, and their performance um, got worse. I'm so I'm I'm sort of comfortable with financial engineering beyond a certain beyond, and, and then there's a certain point at which you, which you need to get vigilant. But I think also you should you should be aware that the simple stuff can get, can go really badly wrong too. The counterfactual to all the securitization and CDSs and complex instruments that went so badly wrong is okay. If that hadn't had happened, the banks would have just done the same lending on balance sheet in a simple form to the same effect. single biggest set of quarterly losses during the crisis was Wachovia, which is a simple retail bank, which just happened to write terrible mortgages. None of the complexity was there. It just just did a really bad job of underwriting. There was a... something at the back.
1: A recent Reuters special report on US banks... Suggests that they're getting back to their ways in two thousand and eight, and also, have any anthropologists commented on smart money?
2: Have any anthropologists commented on smart money? No, no, no one's commented on smart money yet. So I'm, I'm still, I'm still, I'm, I'm waiting. Um, um, it's out in two days, so you know that's, uh, that's, that's when people will will comment. Um, the, the anthropological side of things. I mean, that's kind of the behavioural finance element element to this. I mean, it's, think, it's thinking about how people herd and behave um, in response to incentives. Gillian Tett writes about this a lot. Having and she has a she has a book coming out on anthropology and risk fairly soon. So that that, that will be that will be slightly less good than mine, but it will be um, it, will, it, will, it will it will help you. Um, and sorry, I'm sorry, the, f- the first question was sort of, are the banks up to their old tricks? Is that what you... Yes, basically. I don't... They're not up to the same... Repackage tr- systems, worse than to I no. I don't think... They're not up to their old tricks in the sense of a very complex and opaque um, parceling and distribution of risk. Lots of the, lots of the worst products have disappeared. Um, and um, it's, it's very hard to see them coming back in the foreseeable future. But it depends what you mean by the old tricks. I, you know, as I've as I've tried to indicate, I think the kind of the stuff we think is fine is really dangerous. Um, so they, if they're not up to their old tricks in the sense that they're not um, producing whizzy, turbocharged devilish new products, that's not a reason to feel safe. Um, it's much it's much more the kind of humble humble lending. Um, particularly, property is where the danger the danger lies. So, um, I think, in that sense, they're probably up up to the same things as they were before. It's just we feel we feel much more comfortable about this, and we probably shouldn't. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> we're going to get taken down now. <laughs> No tricky questions.
0: I'm just looking at this, um, this picture here. Have you come across um, similar entities like Lending Club, but more equities-based? I mean, Andy Holden tells us that there's too much debt going on, and we should just try to tweak this somehow and get people not to lend debt, but to invest in various companies, small companies, and to diversify that way and We may have a bit more risk, but for society in total, it may be much safer than uh, just thinking of debt first. You mentioned that people think debt first and then equity. Have you come across any solutions to that problem to become more like Americans and accept some sort of investment risk, but as a result, construct a system which is much less prone to debt-related issues?
2: Um, So the sort of systemic answer to, to creating that that nice outcome is, is is around the tax breaks and that, that I mentioned before. There are examples of equity crowdfunding, as I'm sh- as I'm sure you 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 know. So, and in some ways, the UK is much more progressive on this than um, than the states, which is following um, the example of Europe and specifically Britain. So, CrowdCube is the largest equity funding uh, site in the world. Cedars is catching up quickly. Um, this is often regarded, and, and the idea is just like the lending platforms—you put your money in, um, but uh, as an equity investment into a very, very young company. Um, often, no more than a business plan. Um, and most people regard this, or lots of people regard this, as a, as basically um, a way to rob people of their their money. That um, it is, it's, it's a terribly bad, bad idea. Um, I think there's a kind of. Basic restraint of trade sort of argument, which says that if people want to put their money into these things, that's absolutely fine. We allow them to um, play the lottery, um, and that's no problem. Um, And in fact, the quality of some of the sort of discussion around um, these ventures is really, really very high. And what's interesting is that VCs, so the professional investors, are now are now looking at these platforms as a way of validating ideas. So the, the initial worry was that equity crowdfunding platforms would be, these are the ventures that the smart money, the professional money, has passed on. And so all the dumb money will end up taking the rubbish that's left over. In fact, what's happening is that um, ideas that get validated by the crowd, so lots of money coming in from people who um, you know, are perhaps individual investors, is a way for people to test the qualities of the entrepreneur, they're able to connect with a market and sell the idea, and that's actually a really important skill if you're, if you're setting up a business, and a way of validating demand. So if you have a consumer-facing product and lots of people are interested in it, that's a great sort of way of focus group testing um, the product. So equity crowdfunding is an interesting, interesting idea. Again, it's still pretty, pretty young, um, but it's, it's an example of um, the fintech wave in that space.
1: Um So if there are no any further questions, let me thank Andrew. We'll it was very... Thank you for the
2: questions. That was great. Thank you.